the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Thinking about health care these days? Well, you're not alone. And it seems that getting real information about the state of our medical system is tough to come by. That's why you've come to the right place with Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's got the answers because he's a doctor. I said he's a doctor, and he wants to hear from you right now. 877-969-8600. This is AM860, The Answer. And now, it's time for Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Good morning, everybody. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. Oh, boy, I'm here for you. We're on AM860, The Answer. And you can reach me uh, either at 8.60 a.m. from 9 to 10 a.m. every Sunday morning, Eastern Standard Time, or on your computer worldwide, go to drbillradiomd.com and click Listen Live. If you have a headset or speakers on your computer, then you got me. And you can also get the shows because we archive them. If you scroll down, you'll see From the Vault on my website. Or you can go to the station website, which is am860theanswer.com. That's am860theanswer.com. This is talk radio, interactive radio, although most of the time I do the talking. And I am at 877-969-8600, 877-969-8600. So you give me a call if you want to join in or have some thoughts on any of this. Well, we say goodbye to George Herbert Walker Bush, and so I just wanted to say a few things about him. I voted for him. Uh, I thought he was an okay president. Uh, I predicted in the late 70s, once the idiot Carter walked away from the Shah of Iran, that we would be at war in the Middle East within a decade, and it was, what, 90, 91. So wasn't far off from that. He prosecuted that war. Uh, did a good job. A lot of people criticized him for not going in all the way and taking Saddam Hussein out completely because we had to go back and do it again. But at that time, there was a lot of worldwide pressure not to do that, uh, that the mission was to kick the Iraqi army out of Kuwait and to disable it, which is what what happened and uh, actually made the second war uh, a cakewalk. But an interesting guy. Born to uh, an upper-class family, his father was Prescott Bush, who was a long-time senator, Republican senator, uh, I think from Massachusetts or Connecticut, I can't remember which state, one of the eastern states, and uh, he was credited with keeping the Republican Party together during the, the uh, Great Depression and World War II when FDR and the Democrats had control of, of the government uh, for an unprecedented length of time, by the way. And so he was uh, and still is a hero in the Republican Party. Now, Bush was uh, a preppy school kid, 
but he actually enlisted in the Army Air Force when World War II broke out, and he flew missions. He flew uh, combat missions. He came back and married Barbara, or actually, I think he married her while he was still in the military. And when he came back home, he went to Yale and graduated, got a degree in economics. Uh, he was also, to my surprise, I did not know this, he was a, a college baseball player and he actually went to the World Series of college baseball one year. So uh, had a very active and interesting life. And as we know, he was vice president under Reagan. And then he was president for one term, defeated by the Clintons but really defeated by Ross Perot. And there's a good story that goes along with this. And uh, the Bush family has obviously made a lot of friends and a lot of enemies. Uh, you know, they're a big, powerful family. And I had uh, contact with a fellow who worked for Ross Perot years ago, back in the 70s or 80s, before Ross ran for, for the presidency and took votes away from George Bush and that gave the presidency to Billy Clinton. And the story is that George Herbert Walker Bush was the head of the CIA in the mid-70s when we were bugging out of South Vietnam. And Ross Perot had people still in Saigon, and he wanted to meet with, with uh, Herbert Walker Bush and discuss getting some help to get his people out, and Bush wouldn't even meet with him. Well, Ross Perot did not like that at all, and he swore he'd get even with George Herbert Walker Bush, and he did. He did. He took that second term away from Herbert Walker Bush and gave it to Billy Clinton. Now, these are big people with big egos, and they're they're rough. They don't play uh, the way you and I play. I mean, they 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 play they play with full armor and uh, heavy weaponry. And Ross Perot went after him, and he got him. He got him. And I saw George Bush maybe a month or two in an interview. I don't remember how long it was after he lost to to Billy Clinton, and he said that that was the worst night of his life. The night he lost to Bill Clinton. So I'm sure Ross Perot was extremely satisfied with the job that he did. Now, Bush was a good president, as far as we can tell. He promised not to raise taxes, but did. Uh, and that lost him some support in the conservative community. But overall, he seemed like a good guy who tried his best and was uh, a decent public servant, a man of his era, a 20th century guy. So we say goodbye to him, and uh, we thank him for his service, and we thank him for all the things that he did for the country and for his family, and what a legacy he's had. Oh, my goodness. Governor, president, sons that have done extremely well. My, my. So that's George Herbert Walker Bush. Well, it's Lent. No, it's not. It's Advent. What am I talking about? Advent. So what do you guys know about Advent? I, I thought this would be an interesting thing just to touch on real quickly. Advent in the Roman 
Catholic Church, the Roman Rite is the four weeks preceding uh, Christmas, the four Sundays prior to Christmas. And, and I did not know this until I looked it up, but actually it's the Sunday right after the Feast of, um, I think it's St. Andrew. And St. Andrew was St. Peter's brother. And St. Andrew introduced Peter to Jesus and St. Andrew is uh, purportedly or was purportedly the first uh, disciple of Jesus, the first apostle of Jesus. And so uh, it's the feast day of St. Andrew, the first Sunday after that feast day, and that's the beginning of Advent, which is the four weeks that lead up to Christmas or the birth of Christ. Now, the the, the scholars and the astronomers and all that, they tell us that actually he was probably born in the spring, but I guess this is the day that the early church decided on. I don't know which day he actually was born on. And that's how it's tagged. I did not know that. I did not know that. That's an interesting fact. Uh, and by the way, you know, you, you think of, of these names like Andrew and Peter, and they're actually uh, Greek Latin names. And a lot of the Jews and a lot of the people in the Roman Empire at that time, all around the Mediterranean, took Greek Latin names as their first names. You know, they're doing that in China now. They're taking English first names uh, as as their 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 given names. It's it's fascinating to see how a big uh, empire like the Roman Empire or the United States can have such a uh, huge influence on the world. Fascinating. So at any rate, Peter in English is is a bastardization of the Petros or a number of other ways of saying Peter in Greek and Latin, and it means rock. Peter means rock, and, and as we, as those of us who were raised in the Catholic Church, we know that Jesus said that uh, this is the rock upon which I will build my church. And he, what he meant is this is Peter. Peter is the rock, and that's what the name means. It means rock. So a little, little trivia. In the Feast of St. Nicholas, I believe, is at the end of November, which would make sense. And then we have the Feast of St. Nicholas, which I think is on December 6th. My mother used to celebrate that with us, and we would put out, our little wooden clog shoes that we had gotten at a gift store somewhere on one of our trips. I think we went to Michigan one year and they had a little Dutch uh, gift shop there and she'd fill our, our little wooden clog shoes with, with candy and nuts. And we thought that was a big deal. So we'd celebrate the feast of St. Nicholas, which is I think still celebrated in a lot of countries around the world. And is one of the main days for gift giving in the United States. We do that on Christmas. So a little bit more trivia about the Easter season and the, uh, I mean, the Christmas season. And the Christmas candles uh, represent the passing of the days that lead up to the birth of Jesus. And so you light a candle every day. And we did that when we were kids as part of our Catholic upbringing. That's my insight into Advent. I don't know. Joe, do you celebrate Advent? Is that something you do? Uh, it's not really part of my tradition. I'm more uh, evangelical Protestant, but I'm always interested in what other people are doing. 
So you were raised evangelical, or did you come to that after uh, you were an adult? Uh, it. For me, it was after I came uh, as an adult. It was really not something that was uh, stressed as a as a kid. We weren't really raised that way. So, what what religion were you raised in? Not, I mean, we were, we were generally um, uh, observers of of uh, you know the the divinity of Christ, but I mean, not what we weren't like regular churchgoers or anything. So it was more like a, this is what we believe generally, but you kind of make your own decision, and that was uh, kind of the attitude, and that was the way that all of us kids went. Very Protestant. Pretty yeah. much, yeah. Yeah. And the big difference between Protestantism and Catholicism is the faith versus good works. Uh, I guess somewhere in the middle there's a common ground, but uh, that was the big divide, I think, back when Martin Luther was getting all hopped up and nailing things to the church doors. So how do you celebrate Christmas? Is this something that you... Uh, do you put up a tree, lights, or... Did that or, yesterday, as a matter of fact. Very good, very yeah. good. We do that. We put up a tree. I, as you know, I'm not a, a, a religious person, but uh, certainly have a lot of a lot of respect for Jesus and for what he preached. And uh, I do honor the holiday. And I do like putting up the lights. I spend a lot of time putting up Christmas lights out in front of the house. And all the neighbors come by, and they love it, and the little kids come by, and look, Mommy, there's stars, and we have green and red lights and uh, stars and ribbons and bows and little birdies, and it's, it's a lot of fun. It's a lot of work, though. I mean, it was a whole day, eight hours of, of pushing around my, I, my scaffolding, which I got back from my friend Dave, and David had borrowed that, and I lent it to him. He had it for several years, which actually saved me storage uh, space in the garage. Right. So I got away with a little something there. But I'm pushing this thing all around the front of the house and then over to the neighbors to help them out too. I must have looked like some kind of a nut with the scaffolding. It, it fortunately is made of aluminum and it's very light so it's easy to move around. But it was a lot of fun. I enjoyed it. Yeah, it's all part of the routine, the the um, the, the tradition year to year. Yeah, and, and, you know, we need that. We need tradition. We need uh, rituals and routines in our life. I, th I think that the fact that we're exporting and have exported Christmas all around the world is really a good thing, whether people believe that Jesus is God or not. I think the idea that you have a, a certain day where there is love in everybody's heart and that you're giving with no expectations of receiving. Of course, that's not true with me. I, I want as many presents as I can get. Of course. <laughs> you know, but, but I think the, the ideal is there, and I, that that's to me is a wonderful thing. I, 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 I can't think of a better day. The only day I like more than Christmas is Thanksgiving, uh, but that's just me. So I wish everybody a happy holiday season. And uh, I'm, I'm grateful to see that people are out spending money. The economy is thriving. Everybody's doing well. I'm glad to see that there is an export of our culture around the world. I'm glad to see people taking uh, English, American first names uh, in China. And I, I probably have said this before on the show, Joe. I don't know if you've heard it, but... I'm dealing with a number of salespeople, almost all of them women, young women in China, 
who are selling me medications for my toenail fungal gel that I'm developing. And they all have first names that are Western names, Yvette and, and Susie. And one guy has the name Sunday. I don't know where he came up with that, but I'm assuming that he's probably a closet Christian over there. And so I have a, a, a number of, of people that I'm dealing with and they all have English first names sounds very much like American first names. And they're very curious about our culture. And we're, we're, uh, on WhatsApp, which is pretty popular in China. And so we can text and message back and forth. And there's really no, um, no restrictions on that. I, I haven't seen any, anybody stepping on that from the government over there. And so we can share different aspects of our culture back and forth. I'm careful not to talk about some things because I don't want to get anybody in trouble, but uh, it's liberalizing quickly in China. And, and it's a good thing. It's a good thing. And, and, and I think that uh, we have to say that Christianity and Jesus are a big part of this. There's just no, no doubt about it that, that the idea of uh, a pacifist, um, accepting, universal, loving kind of guy good guy uh, who wants to teach and preach that he would give his life for others. Uh, I mean, that that's a great message, and we export that to the world. And I think we have to stop and reflect also on who we are as a people, and if we really are a, quote, quote, predominantly Christian nation, that we do our best to implement the principles that that Jesus was teaching, which was nonviolence and to be nice and to accept everybody. Not always easy, not always easy. And our natural reaction as human beings is to be a little bit cautious about those things that are foreign to us and to fight when threatened. And we have to we have to restrain ourselves from doing that and stop and think about what it is we're doing and try and find solutions that are nonviolent and peaceful. So from that aspect, I think that uh, it's, it's a great thing that we're exporting to the world. And I hope that we continue to push that and put into practice the teachings of Jesus, because I think he was a good guy. Well, that brings me to another topic that I'm interested in, and that's morality. What what is our moral compass? And I talk about this off and on on the show, and it's something that I keep coming back to because I see so much of this at the lunch table with the other doctors. <coughs> I see them, not all of them, but some of them struggling with what it means to be a moral person. My friend Al is an objectivist, and that's a philosophy that... Uh, Ayn Rand or Ayn Rand started, she was a Jewish Russian immigrant and she came to the United States to escape the communist in the, I believe the 1920s, might have been the 1930s, but she got out of Russia and came here. And she started a school of thought and um, they based their philosophy that on that if you are a rational human being and you and I'm, I'm just paraphrasing this because I'm not smart enough to understand all of this, 
that if you are a rational human being, that you will act in your own best self-interest, which means that you will do no harm to others intentionally from what I can gather. And Al's big on this. And so we have a whole lot of different philosophies at the lunch table. And one of the guys who is from the Jewish side of the family, uh, he was talking about, we were talking about the Christmas season and giving and all that. And he made a big deal of telling me that every year he goes to Toys R Us or Walmart and he'll look at a little kid in, in a line and just uh, go up and offer to pay for their toys for for Christmas. And apparently that gives him a lot of joy. And I, I thought that it was a little bit, uh, I don't know. It just struck me wrong as, as being raised Catholic where you're supposed to do good things all the time. Every day you're supposed to give. And perhaps Catholicism's gone overboard on that. I don't know. But I thought, you know, once a year, what are you bragging about this? I mean, where's the morality in that? Well, I mean, he's not doing it for the kid. He's doing it for himself and then for the bragging rights, which I guess if that makes him feel good, more power to him. Not something that I think is uh, a true act of, of selflessness and giving. You know, to me, the selfless and the giving person is the person who gets up and does their job to their fullest extent without expecting someone to say to them every day, oh, you're wonderful, you do the best job. Or the person who gets up and they've tithed to their church or they, they have made a pledge to every month give so much of their money to a charity or they take all of their extra goods up to Salvation Army. And in that way, give back on a consistent basis to their community and to their fellow human beings. That, that to me, seems more of a charitable and giving and truly uh, selfless act than to do it once a year and then want to brag about it. Now, there's another guy in the lunchroom, and once a year he goes and he works on Habitat for Humanity. And he made a big deal of telling me this. And I thought, well, I mean, I'm, I'm happy for you that you go spend a weekend building houses. I mean, good for you. But what does that have to do with giving? And I mean, these guys are wealthy. They're multimillionaires. They've made big money in medicine. They've invested wisely. And they have no problem letting you know that they have money, which is okay. I mean, there's nothing wrong with making money. And if you want to brag about your money, well, you know, that's, that's up to you. I, I, I think that bragging about one's wealth is, is, uh, a little low class for me, but I was raised not to think of wealth as, as something that you would hang your, your ego on rather as something that you would use for good, whether it be good for yourself and your family or your friends or your community, that the act of becoming and building 
in a career or a business or through investments something of value, value monetarily, value valuable in terms of emotional uh, uh, strength that it brings, uh, value in terms of familial strength that it endows. I mean, all these things I think are important and I have no problem with people making big money as long as they don't take advantage of me doing it or other people. There's the rub. There's the morality of it. So what is morality? Is, is it immoral to make big money? No, I don't think it's immoral to make big money. Is it immoral to want to be uh, recognized for occasional acts of, of kindness? I, I don't think that that's immoral or wrong. Is it, does it mean that you're leading a moral life? That's, I guess that's the question that I'm raising. If you make a decision to once a year do a good deed, does that make you a good deed doer? What if you make that decision on a daily basis to try to be a little bit nicer, to try to be a little bit humbler or a little bit uh, more giving or a little bit more concerned? That doesn't mean you have to give away everything you have, although that's what Jesus said. I mean, he said, look, if you want to really be like me, go sell everything and come join me and we'll go and uh, do this uh, do this walkabout and preach my view on the uh, on the New Testament and the Gospels and well actually the Gospels hadn't been written then but on the on the Torah and what it meant and a lot of the Torah a lot of the Old Testament the Jewish Old Testament has been carried over into the New Testament it's pretty much the same except for a few things like Jesus as God and the Messiah Excuse me. Oh, my goodness. That went down the wrong way. I'm back. <laughs> so what is our moral development? What are the stages of them? How do we become moral people? Do we have this inherently inside of us? Is there something in us that says, ooh, genetically give back to the community, don't kill, don't hit, is this something we learn? Is there a mix? There seems to be some commonality among all, all cultures that uh, it's immoral to kill people for no reason. It's immoral to steal. I mean, there's a, a number of, of about six or eight items that are pretty much taboo no matter what culture you go into. But that doesn't mean that Everything that we think is wrong in our culture is wrong in, an, in another culture. So we have to stop and think about what it is that we want to impart to our children and to our community in terms of morals and values and what is important to us. And, of course, the idea of spreading the the good word of Jesus, whether you believe he's a God or not, or Buddha, uh, is to me uh, fundamental to sharing our morals and values around the world. 
I'm going to grab a cup of Joe and I'll be right back. This is Dr. Bill, your radio MD. He's a detective down in Texas. You know he knows just exactly what the facts is. He ain't gonna let those two escape justice. He makes his living off of the people's taxes. AM 860, the answer. Whoa, whoa, she away. Billy Joe caught up to her the very next day. With SRN News, I'm Michael Harrington in Washington. Former President George H.W. Bush will receive final honors here in Washington this week before his burial in Texas. Details are being worked out even as we speak. The former president being remembered as a revered political statesman and hailed by leaders across the political spectrum as a man not only of greatness but also of uncommon decency and kindness. Mr. Bush died Friday at age 94. He used to be honored with a funeral service in the nation's capital on Wednesday at the National Cathedral and will be buried Thursday in, te- uh, in Texas at the family plot. French President Emmanuel Macron holding an emergency government meeting today on security after yesterday's anti-gas tax protest turned into a riot in Paris, the worst the city has seen in decades. And President Trump is hailing a deal with China that will keep tariffs off and see the Chinese buy more U.S. products. This is SRN News. Dr. Bill for Bay Area Medical, located at 6399 38th Avenue North in St. Pete, 727-384-6411, 727-384-6411. Full-service clinic with x-ray, heart imaging, ultrasound, stress testing, and minor surgery. We provide quality health care in a warm and friendly atmosphere. We are multilingual, well-trained, and certified. Most American insurance and new patients accepted. Bay Area Medical, home of can care, 727-384-6411. 727-384-6411. Hello, this is Dr. Bill Handelman for our good friends at Tampa Bay Imaging. TBI provides state-of-the-art MRI and CT scanning with the lowest radiation possible. Most insurance plans accepted and self-pay rates are very competitive. TBI is conveniently located in Tampa and St. Pete with evening and weekend appointments. So call TBI today or ask your doctor. In Tampa, call 813-386-3674. St. Pete, call 727-545-9674. Greetings, I'm Bob Canigliaro. Here we are in the midst of the busy holiday season. Friend and family gatherings, the hustle and bustle of shopping, and the rekindling of relationships with loved ones and our faith are all in order. It is truly the season of family. Here at your local Casper's Company McDonald's restaurants, we welcome you to experience the joy of seasonal tastes like the steamy peppermint mocha McCafe beverage or a delicious fresh-baked holiday pie. Witness giggles over a happy meal or the sharing of a family pack. Through each bite, the laughter, jokes, stolen French fries, and memories is a gift exchange of the highest order, the gift of time. Remember to give it often and spend it with no budget. It is precious and highly coveted. 
and we are honored when allowed to be a part of the exchange. Blessings to you and your loved ones from all of us under the arches, and may the joy of this season be endless. Thank you for making my dream a reality and publishing my very first book. Karen Notner is author of Is Jesus Your Pearl? You encouraged me, you laughed with me, and you held my hand through the entire process. Karen's publisher is Zulon Press. Do you dream about publishing? Make the dream real with America's fastest-growing Christian book publisher. Your free publishing guide is waiting at ChristianPublishing.com. Thank you so much to all the wonderful professionals at Zulon Press. Visit Zulon Press at ChristianPublishing.com. Here is your exclusive AccuWeather forecast. High rip current risk in effect through this evening. For today, periods of clouds and sun with a shower or thunderstorm in spots in the afternoon. High today, 83. For tonight, partly cloudy and humid with patchy fog developing after midnight, low 70. Patchy fog continues into the morning tomorrow with some sun, high 81. That's your AccuWeather forecast. I'm Kevin Snyder for AM860, The Answer. Radio MD talking about the holiday season, Advent, uh, the four weeks before Christmas, and morality and the exportation of our um, really our morals and values around the world by way of by way of uh, the teachings of Jesus, whether you believe he's God or not, or you believe in Christianity or not, or whatever. I mean, I'm not, and I don't believe that. I don't believe that a God uh, as uh, in the persona of Jesus actually existed. I mean, I believe that Jesus existed, but I think that, that I think God is more of a universal um, spirit that imbues all of creation and the, the infinite universe is the infinite God. But to have a man like Jesus come and preach and uh, set an example as he did uh, to me, is a miracle if there are such things. Not that I'm, not, you know, not that I believe in that kind of supernatural, but using it metaphorically, it's it's really uh, to to see someone come and and do what he did, and lay down his life the way he did. I mean, that's a strong statement about who he is. So now we celebrate the arrival of this man into Western society, and and we've exported it around the world. That's a good thing, and so it it takes us into the theme of. Uh, having a moral compass, and where do we get that, and where does it come from? And for a lot of people, it's through their religion, whether it's Christianity or Judaism or Buddhism or or Islam or whatever it is that, that gives them their moral compass. And the, the one thing that I have said on the show before, and I'll say it again, is that if you knew tomorrow that there was no God, you woke up and you absolutely knew that it was proven that there was no God in the universe, so would you change the way you lead your life? And if you say, yes, I would, I would not be as good a person, then you need to stick with religion. You need, you need to keep going to the mosque or the temple or the church or the whatever. Uh, but if you have morals and values, and that's the, the idea of the socialization that, that religion and spirituality bring to us, is the internalization of morals and values, that if you have that, then you've got it. I mean, you can believe that Jesus is God, you can go to church and pray, but you've got something that not everybody has. You've, 
been able to internalize and take for your own those lessons of life and those feelings of what is right and what is fair and what is ethical and what is moral, and you've made them part of your everyday life. And I think that's the point I was trying to make earlier, that if you do something just intermittently once a year, and then you say, well, that makes me a good person, I I, I don't see it that way. I see that morals and values are something that you have with you all the time, and that you put into practice every day, every minute, every second. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfect. Sure, we all get mad and cut somebody off on the road. Well, not all of us, but Dr. Bill does that. And, uh, you know, have too many cups of coffee and run our mouth when we shouldn't, and that, that sort of thing. But I think that to internalize morals and values, if, if they are external, and I'm, I'm not sure, I don't know, I think that they're partly inherited and partly from the external uh, environmental pressures and teachings that we go through. But uh, if you have those, then you got it. You got it. Well, what are the stages of moral development, if you want to talk about it in that, in that light? Uh, if you want to put it into a psychological uh, sense, then there are stages that have been laid out by psychologists that the pre-conventional or level one where obedience and punishment are how we get oriented and our self-interest comes first. And so we think of little, little kids, but we know, we know from experiments now that even toddlers have some morals and values that they don't think it's fair. If someone takes something away from another kid, most, most little kids don't like that. If it causes that other kid pain and harm. Now that doesn't mean they have a problem taking it away themselves, but the morals and values there may be different. They may be reacting to something other than an outside force that's interfering with their, with their little social order. So, but this is where I guess a lot of people in prison get hung up that they, they never get past this stage. And I think part of this, and I'll, I'll keep saying this is that a lot of people in prison are children of abuse and neglect. And you can't develop normally if you're abused or neglected. That's important. That's why we're so staunchly uh, defending the family unit and the involvement of the parents. And, and I think this is almost universal in, in our culture now that everybody is pushing for this uh, to give kids some moral guidance as well as intellectual and physical and social and uh, interactional guidance that we want them to learn how to be productive and uh, positive members of society. So a lot of people get hung up at this level and, and are they evil? Well, no, I don't believe that. You know, I, I had a father who was heavy handed with the belt and it took me a lot of years to get over a lot of my impulsivity that came from that. And I did a lot of things that I probably should have been locked up for some of them, but fortunately I was smart enough to get away (laughs) and not get caught. But uh, I see the the logic of not being abusive or neglectful of kids. Because if you want to make a little sociopath or a personality disorder, then all you got to do is be abusive and neglective and deny them love and affection 
And these are all things that this time of year that we're preaching and teaching and hoping for. So this is where a lot of people in prison get hung up. They're hung up at level one. Now, the kids get a little bit older. Uh, They go to level two, which is more conventional, interpersonal accord and conformity. You know, the kids all want to have the same lunchbox when they go, and they want Pokemon or whatever's popular uh, when they go to grade school. Authority and social order maintaining orientation. They all want to try to fit in. Well, not all of them. I, I couldn't fit in very well. I was, I was too, uh, I was really too, I guess, abused. I mean, I don't know. And I had a hard time fitting in in pre-K and in kindergarten. And I got sent home a lot. It took me until I got to eh, maybe the fourth or fifth grade that I started to see the light of how to be uh, a member of a social order, so to speak. And so the movement from punishment and reward, which works for for dogs and cats and humans and and most animals, uh, but it's it's fairly primitive. Let's face it, to interpersonal accord and conformity and getting along. That's a big step. Then level three is the post-conventional social contract orientation, universal ethical principles. And we start to learn those uh, early on. I mean, we learn those right away from our parents because although we may not seem cognizant, we're picking up things even as newborns and making decisions. And I've watched this in the newborn nursery. I've watched kids, newborn babies, have very uh, meaningful and specific actions, primitive and self-defensive, but purposeful and meaningful. I watched my own son, who was in the intensive care unit for 10 days after he was born with a serious lung problem. He pulled out every IV that we stuck in him. He pulled out his feeding tube. (laughs) I mean, he'd get his little fingers underneath that tube that was taped to his face and just yank that thing right out. And you say, well, that's just, uh, you know, that's that's instinct, instinct, that's reactive. And where, where does instinct end and rational thought begin. I don't know. I've struggled with this. I think that we go back to the same discussion at the first half of the show, which is how much is genetic and how much is environmental. And that's a big debate. The more we see from the geneticist, the more we think environmentally, there are different pressures that shape us in ways that genetics cannot and will not. And the classic example of that is the herd of cows that one geneticist bred. They're all basically the same. Yes, they may have some point mutations that are different, but 99.999999% of the cows were all the same. And yet they all had different personalities. They all fell into the herd in different places. One was a loner. One was the bossy one and wanted to run the show. So uh, this is in large part, learned behavior. Does that mean that we don't have some preconceived or pre-imprinted morals and values? I think we do. I think that if we're not abused or neglected and we're just, we're, we're, we're left to graze and get some love and attention and hang out with the other kids in the crowd and uh, get some parental guidance that we will come out of it 
with some basic morals and values, even if they're not being preached to us in church. I think we'll come out with knowing that if you hurt somebody, you might get hurt back. And uh, that's probably not a good thing because you don't like to be hurt. And so the golden rule, I think, is innate in uh, in probably in in all species, but certainly uh, consciously in humans, we've been able to verbalize it and formalize it and put it into religious text and philosophical text. And the, the golden rule, I think, is pre-imprinted on us that we figure out early that a kick might get a kick back. And uh, that's, that's before we're conscious of, of our environment around us. So we see obedience and punishment as and we have traditionally seen that as an integral part of morals and values, but uh, I'm not sure that physical punishment, and by the way, the American Academy of Pediatrics has come out against any kind of physical punishment of children, and I've, I've kind of morphed into agreeing with them on that. Looking back at my own life, I, I think that that's a good thing. I, I think that punishment should be uh, non-corporeal, I think it should be guidance in nature. I think that it should be uh, structured so that it gives the person who is receiving that quote, quote, punishment, if you want to call it that, um, time to reflect upon what they've done and and explanations of, of why that is being imposed and where the morality of that is. And, of course, you have to gauge that differently for different levels of of kids, different age groups, and different social structures. I think that we all are going to act on our own self-best interest, and perhaps the objectivists, the followers of Ayn Rand, have gotten stuck in stage two, but as they move on up through there and try to incorporate the other stages, they say, well, yes, I'm going to act in my own self-best interest, but at the same time, I'm going to conform to the morals and values of the society, which will actually be in my own self-best interest, so that I'm not going to steal, I'm not going to lie or cheat, or uh, to the best of my abilities, take advantage of other people or beat up the kid down the street, because these are not things that are going to help me get further down the road. They're not going to help me achieve what I want to achieve in life. And so... We move into the stage three, which is good intentions as determined by social consensus. And there we're into the social and uh, uh, societal morals and values. And they, they differ in a little bit from society to society. You know, it's, it's not the same in every society. My sisters think it's all the same. It's not. It's really not. That there are um, differences and that in one society – Women may have a certain role that is not the same as it is in another society, and that may be morally and socially and ethically acceptable. Now, we're changing that around the world. We're demanding that if we're going to do business with the Muslim world, that they have to change. We're demanding that the communist countries, if we're going to do business with them, that they have to change. And we have changed them. And that's another way that we're exporting our ideals, 
our morals and our values to the world. And these are uh, in large part based on the on the work of the Western Greek and, and uh, Roman philosophers and the teachings of Jesus and the Torah, the Jewish Old Testament. And all of this has has come together to create what we are today. We move into another stage post-conventional where there's principles involved. And you say, well, what are principles? Principles are things that I act on on a daily basis because they make uh, uh, not only moral sense and ethical sense, but they make common sense to me. So my moral uh, oath as a physician is that first I shall do no harm. So, you know, I try not to do anything that's going to hurt another person. I'm not going to implement a treatment if I consciously know that it can or will hurt someone else and that the benefits do not outweigh the risk. So I have to weigh the risk-benefit ratio. So that is the principle that I employ. I employ the principle that what someone tells me is uh, sacred, it's sacrosanct, and that I won't tell it to anyone else. I mean, there's obviously going to be circumstances where I have to break that with somebody psychotic uh, or suicidal. I mean, the, our, our morals and values are such that we intervene. Um, I will not have sex with a patient. That, to me, makes common sense because it muddies the relationship. It takes advantage of somebody who is in a, in a, in, in a dependent position to me, and that's, that's not right. I mean, you, you, you just don't do that. Uh, so there's a number of things that as a physician who took the Hippocratic Oath have become principles for me and that I put into practice every day. Uh, that doesn't mean that I'm not a jerk or I'm not a yahoo or that I don't make faux pas or that I don't get people upset. It means that I have some basic principles that I put into practice every day. And I do this not only for the benefit of my patients, but also for the benefit of me and of my society and these, these are what we call the principle levels. Then we have social contract-driven morality. Social contracts. A social contract is a, a marriage contract. It's a neighborhood uh, homeowners association contract. It's uh, a board of government contract. It's a board of directors. It's a corporate board. It's, it's any number of, of social interactions where people come together and they are contractually bound to work with each other in a certain way. And some contracts are more specific. Some are necessarily a little bit more liberal, like marriage, where we have some basic rules and, and contractual agreements between a marital couple that will honor each other. We will work hard for each other. We'll support each other in sickness and health. We will be faithful to each other in our culture. That's important. And uh, so there are a number of things, but there are also a number of things left out. It doesn't say, I'll never get upset and blow my top and yell at you. But we work and do our best not to argue with our spouse because it doesn't do any good. There's always a, a repercussion, especially if you're married to a woman, by the way. Because you, you argue with your wife, and you probably know this, Joe, you're not going to win that argument no matter what. So <laughs> you might as well just give that up right away. 
And uh, maybe that's where the male aspect of the marriage has to come in and we have to say, the wife is always right. That's the way to end the argument. But you can see that in that social contract, we have to leave some things open. We're not going to always agree on how to raise the kids, and so we have to meet and discuss it and come to some consensus. And these are social contracts that are worked out over time, that the morals and values of raising a child, what religion will we raise them, what morals and values will they have, uh, are we going to tell them it's, it's wrong to steal unless you're doing it to save somebody's life? Uh, do you tell them to always tell the truth? Well, what about tattletaling? You know, I always told my son, I don't want you to tattle. I don't want to hear anything unless it's a life or death situation or there is arterial bleeding or there's some major event that that's going to occur if I don't intervene. Otherwise, I want you to learn how to solve your problems yourself. I don't want you to tattle. And so he is the kind of kid who keeps his confidence and keeps his countenance, and uh, I think he does a good job with that, and I've never, or rarely do I hear him talk negatively even about people who he, I know, has not so nice of feelings about. So we, we have to move into that level of it. And then there's the universal ethical principles that drive us. I think that everybody would agree that war is a bad thing. We would avoid war if we could. At times it seems necessary. If you're a true Christian and follower of the teachings of Jesus Christ, then you won't wage war no matter what. You'll be a conscientious objector. And so I think there's a, a, a number of universal moral codes. Now, whether or not these are learned or pre-imprinted, and like I said, I think some of these are pre-imprinted, to tell you the truth. And I think that uh, that's partly what Jesus was saying, is that, hey, you know, you're, you're straying from your original imprinting, and your original imprinting was that you do good, and you do no harm, not consciously anyway. So that's my take on it, and uh, I guess Jesus was kind of an early psychologist, uh, and that he incorporated a lot of these principles into his teachings and tried to use allegories to uh, get to a final point of ethics and morals of how to lead your life. And Not that I could do that. I mean, I could never be a, a true follower of Jesus because, I, I mean, I'm just, I'm, I'm not nonviolent. That's probably a problem, but I've gotten more pacifist as I've gotten older. I'm cutting fewer people off, and uh, I think that's a good thing. I think I'm being a good boy. I'm trying my best not to, not to be, <laughs> not to have road rage anymore. That's my my little uh, cross to bear. That's the main thing that's left over from the tough, semi-tough, not real heavily abused, but you know I got the belt, and it didn't seem appropriate to me and I didn't understand a lot of it, and, and that, of course, makes you angry, and that anger drives a lot of immorality, as, as, I, would, as I would frame it. Well, we're getting close to the end of the show. Joe, it's been good having you on board, bud. And oh, yeah. I hope 
uh, yeah, I hope everybody has a great weekend. Say hi to Bill and Jose. And uh, you guys think about this as the holiday season progresses. It's about you and me and our love and interaction with each other. I'm Dr. Bill, your Radio MD. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records of the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.